0: This is climate one. Every place we inhabit has its own tapestry of sound. But as the planet warms and we lose biodiversity, that sound is changing.
1: The density and diversity of wildlife, birds, insects, frogs, uh, and some mammals has changed radically.
0: In urban centers, our efforts to mitigate the climate crisis will also have an effect on that soundscape, maybe for the better.
2: If we reduce the amount of car noise say, then we hear coffee machines and you can hear your neighbors and you hear birds singing. The sound of a city comes forward if we reduce the soundtrack.
0: Will we listen to the message our world is sending us? Or will we tune it out?
1: When an environment is healthy, the sounds are defined in these very carefully illustrated niches. When it's under stress, that all breaks apart. Stop,
0: listen, what's that sound? I'm Arianna Brocious.
3: And I'm Greg Dalton.
0: We're surrounded by sounds all day long, but how often do you really stop and listen to your environment?
3: Whether you're hiking through the woods or sitting in a cafe with a friend, there's an endless collection of sounds that make up those places. Not only are they part of our sensory experience, they can give us vital information about the health of our ecosystems that we rely on.
0: Yeah, that's true. And climate disruption is having an effect on the sound of our natural world. Unfortunately, a big part of that is due to the loss of biodiversity. There has been a 69% reduction in wildlife populations since 1970, according to the World Wildlife Fund.
3: That's a staggering and painful figure. And statistics like that are hard to grasp, the loss of things we've never seen or heard. What does that really mean? It's hard to fathom. Maybe hearing these changes can help us understand what's happening. To find out just how the natural soundscape has changed and what can be learned from that change, I spoke with musician and soundscape ecologist Bernie Krauss.
0: Krauss has been described as the father of bioacoustics, which is basically the study of how animals make, transmit, and receive sounds. He's been recording wild soundscapes since the 1970s and has an audio archive of more than 15,000 species.
3: He's a legend and a prolific author. In 1988, a forested area in the California Sierras called Lincoln Meadow was harvested using a process called selective logging, which was intended to minimize the visual impact of fewer trees. But audio recordings Bernie Krause made before and after that logging tell a very different story.
1: I had been recording Lincoln Meadow uh, all during the early 80s, and I went up there every summer to, to capture that sound because it was such a pristine, beautiful place. It's right at the top of Yuba Pass, uh, for those who are interested in it, uh, just north of uh, Truckee. I asked the logging company that had a lease on that land, they had told the residents around that area uh, that they were going to do a new model of logging called selective logging, taking out a tree here and there, relatively new at that time, and that there'd be no environmental impact as a result. And I said, fine. I said, can I go up and record before you do that? And I did. I went up in June, uh, right on the solstice of 1988, recorded the habitat in the Sierras at about oh, 6,700 feet. And uh, that summer, the logging company did their selective logging bit. And I came back a year, exactly a year later under the same conditions and recorded again. And what I found was that not only were there lots of birds there, but they weren't singing very much. Hmm. And even though with a photograph, the place looked unchanged. There didn't seem to be a stick or a, a tree out of place. But to the ear, the difference was astounding. It was so quiet and so scary because... Uh, even though they just took out a few trees, the biophany really changed.
3: Mm, that's really quite compelling, things that we're, we're missing by being visually focused. You point out in your book, The Great Animal Orchestra, that we don't even really have the language to describe sound. You've dedicated your life to capturing sound. How do you describe it and what does it mean to you? Well, it depends on what kind.
1: <laughs> and, uh, sure. And, and I do make a distinction in the book between noise and signal. Signal being mm-hmm. that which is important information for us to have, whether it's musical or, uh, or natural sound or just information that you and I are discussing right now. Th- that's signal. Noise is distraction. And noise can come in any form. The signals of the world give us information that we need to have. It's a narrative of place. It's a narrative of time. When you get the right kinds of noise, it informs you that way. But as David Bowie said, the future belongs to those who can hear it coming. I think we got to pay some attention to that because we can hear the changes that are taking place now.
3: Right. And and so much of uh, the mainstream news media is filled with images of melting glaciers, et cetera, burning forests. You once wrote, quote, a great silence is spreading over the natural world, even as the sound of man is becoming deafening. How did you come to that conclusion?
1: Well, because in my recordings over the years, I've been recording now since 1968, my recordings over the years, I'm seeing the changes over time when I go back and visit, revisit these places that I've captured, uh, you know, years before. And uh, the density and diversity of wildlife, of vocal wildlife, birds, insects, frogs, uh, and some mammals, uh, has changed radically. Uh, Not only that, the flyways have been affected by the fact that Spring is occurring two weeks earlier than it did when I was recording in the 90s. And so things are really radically changed now. And it's, it's disturbing for me to really hear when I do uh, comparisons and uh, look at, the, at a before comparison and after comparison, you know, when, mm-hmm. I, when I first recorded now, when I record now and it's really radical it's changed all over the place we since 1970 there was an article in the guardian uh, uh last year since 1970 over 3 billion birds have been lost in the total on, uh, number of birds in north america that's a mm. lot of critters
3: yeah that's it's hard hard to fathom the the scale that's happening. You helped coin the terms biophony and anthropophony to help describe different aspects of the soundscape experienced on Earth. Can you help explain those terms? Sure. Um, I was trying to figure out how to
1: talk about the soundscapes. R. Murray Schaefer uh, wrote in, in his book, uh, The Tuning of the World, in 1977. He was a Canadian composer and naturalist. And he wrote in his book um, the description of the soundscape, because he's the guy that came up with that term and actually gave it credence. And the soundscape to him was all of the sound that reaches our ears from whatever source. When I started to work on this in this field, the sources were important to me, but the sources didn't have any identification or name. There was the mechanical world that humans have introduced and sounds coming from the mechanical world and electrical world. There were sounds coming from the natural world, Well, how do you make the distinction? I first came up with the term biophony in my book, Into the Wild Sanctuary, which came out in 1998. But when we began to work with the National Park Service and introduce the soundscape idea to the National Park Service, With the late Stuart Gage, who was um, emeritus from Michigan State University, we wanted to add some other terms to it. So, the first term that we came up with was geophany, because geophanies are the sounds, are the non biological sounds that occur on Earth, uh, the effects of wind in the trees, water in the stream, Mm -hmm. waves at the ocean shore, uh, movement of the earth, that kind of thing. And geophany was the first sound heard on earth before living organisms uh, ever emerged uh, to hear them. 550 million years ago, uh, organisms began to emerge. And uh, they had, they were affected by sound and they also uh, transmitted sounds because every living organism uh, is able to transmit uh, some kind of signal. Mm. We, We even have viruses recorded. Which is mm. not a, technically a li- living organism, but we have viruses, and we have everything from viruses to large whales. So we've got it, we've got it covered now. But before when I started, we didn't have it covered so much. So geophony was the main first source of sound on Earth, followed by biophony when living organisms evolved uh, to hear and express themselves, and then finally there's anthropophony. Anthropophony being the sounds that we create. Some of those signals, and and that really is in two subclasses. Uh, The first is controlled sound like music, theater, language, um, and things that we use to transmit information. Um, And the second is uh, incoherent or chaotic sound, which is noise. And uh, that's mostly human generated. And so we have to account for that in, in that way. So those are the three elements uh, geophony, biophony, and anthropophony.
3: In 2017, you said that well over 50% of my natural sound archive recorded since 1968 comes from habitats that are now either altogether silent or where the biophonies can no longer be heard in any of their original form. That's a very disconcerting statement. Has the percentage of now silent biophonies grown? Yeah,
1: it's really incredible. What people are doing in Europe right now is they're going through a process of what's called rewilding and bringing these textures back to environments that they're trying to make healthy again. They're restoring the vegetation that's the natural vegetation of these places. And things are beginning to change in some areas. In Costa Rica, they're, they're replanting forests uh, that have been, you know, in a way that's more natural, not having these rows of trees and so on and so forth.
3: So repair is possible and happening.
1: Repair is possible in some areas uh, if it's done right and it is happening. It's not being restored to what it was because the soundscape. It, it, there aren't the uh, the critters around the organisms around to to replace what's been lost uh, so that's an interesting component that hasn't yet you know come back but for the most part the the vegetation is beginning to uh, be restored and that's having a marked impact on the
3: habitats and, and you've described the frequency ranges that different animal sounds occupy as similar to that of an orchestra. Say more about that.
1: Well, what happened is when I was in uh, Kenya working for the California Academy of Sciences in early 1980s, after I got my degree, I was in my tent one night listening to the sounds around me. And I, I'd been up for like 30 hours or something like that. And the soundscape the biophany sounded to me like it was organized. I couldn't tell you how it was organized, but it sounded like there was a coherence to it. When I came back to San Francisco to take a look at a spectrogram or a graphic illustration of sound, sure enough, the insects were in, in one niche, the birds were in another niche, the mammals were in another niche, the amphibians in uh, and, and, and their frequency range and all of these uh, voices seemed to blend together in a certain kind of way, yet they were mm. strategically defined in this spectrogram. And so what I was hearing actually was occurring. And what happens is, the, we don't hear that because we don't know how sound is organized in a healthy space. But just think about that for a second. When an environment is healthy, the sounds are defined in these very carefully illustrated niches. When it's under stress, that all breaks apart. And especially when human noise is, is uh, an issue that's causing the stress in that habitat. And all of the critters began to s- begin to search for their niches so that their voices can be heard, so that they can survive. Because if your voice can't be heard and it's masked by some other sound, the habitat is gonna become stressed. And sure enough, it's like our own voices when we have a cold or something like that. When we're sick, it shows in our voice. When a habitat is sick, it shows in its voice.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the effect that climate disruption is having on our soundscape. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now from your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, how are we forcing animals to change the sounds they make?
1: The noise that we're creating is really having an effect on the acoustic world, the bioacoustic world. And uh, animals that are going to survive are those that are changing their voices to make it happen. Because the voices are the signs of life.
0: That's up next.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: Let's get back to Greg's conversation with soundscape ecologist Bernie Krause about the changes to what we hear caused by climate disruption. They talked about the emotional weight of studying these changes and how humans have altered the existence of so many non-humans.
1: Every morning I swing my legs over to the side of the bed and and uh, and hope there's going to be somebody out there with whom I can connect and work and, um, and inspire to continue this work. The life of the natural world, the way that it's expressed is through that voice, and it's really important for us to pay some attention to that. To the extent that we do, we're going to be okay. To the extent that we don't, we're in bad shape. Paul Shepard wrote in his book, uh, The Others, How Animals Made Us Human. Uh, there was a passage in the book where he says that the further we draw away from the natural world is a culture, the more pathological we become. And uh, if you don't believe that, just listen to the news.
3: And in 2017, your home, archives, and equipment was destroyed in a wildfire north of San Francisco. Part of a pattern of wildfires, experts say, are amplified by society's use of fossil fuels. What were the sounds of that fire, and how have you recovered?
1: Well, we have survived. I wouldn't say completely recovered because we still have nightmares about that event. Uh, we just got out um, by the skin of our teeth. I just happened to be up and watching television that night. And when I, when, I saw the, um, when I saw the leading edge of the fire on the screen, I looked at the door, the glass door that we have for the front of our house, and it looked like that same fire, but it wasn't. The whole hillside where we lived, we had 10 acres in Glen ellen the whole hillside was, had just burst into flames. My wife had just had uh, knee surgery, so she was limping. she just got home, and so I had to get her to the car. And um, we, the fire was so bad, we never even saw the driveway, because the driveway, the asphalt was on fire. It was a flame. We just drove right through it. And uh, luckily, the gate was broken in an open position because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now.
3: Yeah, and some people died in their cars and fleeing that and similar fires. Um, All of your your home and equipment was destroyed. What about your sound archive? Ah,
1: interesting. Uh, I had got a copy of my sound. We're doing a lot of work right now with the Cartier Foundation in Paris, and uh, where they've commissioned me to transform a lot of our library, uh, the, certainly the scientific data, the field data into large format works of art. So I had to protect myself, I had got a copy, a full copy of my archive offshore. In March of 2017, the fire took place in October. And the reason that I did it was twofold. One, one of the people at the Cartier Foundation said, you know, you're having trouble with the current administration uh, that is so anti-science. And you may want to protect your material by having it offshore, which a lot of people are doing at the EPA and, uh, and NOAA and so on. And so uh, I did, I made a full copy of my archive and handed it to them. And that was the thing that saved our lives and, um, and our work because otherwise everything was destroyed.
3: Right. At that time, there was a lot of concern about data, continuity, and integrity. And this piece that you did, The Great Animal Orchestra, which premiered in Paris in 2016, will be coming to the Exploratorium in San Francisco this summer. Can you describe this and what you're trying to do is create sound as an immersive experience for people going to a museum?
1: Well, the one thing about natural soundscapes and the work that I've uh, discovered with it
3: is that
1: when people hear them, they're not culturally biased. So these are sounds that reach across all cultures. The narrative is universal uh, because it tells people certain things about, like I said, it's narrative of time and place. And it tells people that without judgment and bias. uh, It just is what it is. And the natural world is reaching out to us because it's saying we're alive and we are part of the life that you need to survive. What are you going to do about it? And so it reaches kids of all ages, from four or five years old because it's animals, out to uh, people my age, and uh, and it's so engaging. Uh, it's an hour and a half piece. It's in. It has a visual form, which is the sound, which is are the spectrograms which are shown in real time off of coming off of the, the soundscapes that are transmitted in the, in the uh, space. And um, it really is an homage to life. It's quite an extraordinary uh, thing for us because I never thought that I would ever see something happening in that kind of format. It's very unusual.
3: Sounds fascinating. I look forward to experiencing it. We know that burning fossil fuels and the resulting climate disruption has reduced the number of species in this soundscape. But has it also caused animals to change their sounds that they make? And what form do those changes take?
1: Well, sure. Um, there are some animals that can change their voices. Uh, birds were singing louder in urban areas that were very noisy. Uh, whales, like killer whales, for instance, uh, or sinos, orcus, orca, Uh, were changing their vocalizations up in Vancouver and uh, uh, the San Juan Islands. So they were changing their vocalizations, singing louder or vocalizing in different ways so that the timbre of their sounds uh, carried further. And that's happening. The noise that we're creating is really having an effect on the acoustic world, the bioacoustic world. And uh, animals that are going to survive are those that are changing their voices to make it happen. Because the voices are the signs of life.
3: And you've discussed the geophony or the sounds produced by non-living elements in the natural world. How has the disrupted planet changed the sound of the geophony?
1: Well, again, that's another sound that we need and that non-human animals use to uh, orient themselves. And uh, if that sound is masked by human noise, we lose that orientation. And so it's really important to have those signals uh, in clear channels so that they can be heard and interpreted for what they really are.
3: I think of it as, you know, for recently, we scientists have been educating people about increased storms and hurricanes, et cetera. And I felt before I heard it, I felt stronger winds in the Bay Area. I was like, wow, these winds seem stronger than before, which goes to follow. We're taking energy out of the ground and putting it into the air, right? You know, record high winds. And that's part of what's fueled the, the firestorms that destroyed your house. So for me, the sound that I hear is, is high wind that says to me, danger. Oh, big time! Uh,
1: uh, In October 17, when we were burned out, the winds were 82 miles an hour. That's a Cat One hurricane.
3: In recent storms, it's reached 100 miles an hour in some near my home in the Bay Area. In 2020, a 9-kilometer fiber-optic cable was laid out on the Rhone Glacier in Switzerland to record the sound of a melting glacier to better help scientists measure the amount of glacier melt. So how can sound be used to help measure the changes on the planet caused by burning fossil fuels? Well, it, right now, we're
1: able to quantify uh, the loss of many species, um, uh, and the ways in which they're being diminished by noise and by uh, climate change. I mean, there are all kinds of factors, there are many permutations involved in that. And, uh, and they all kind of link to one another. So it's happening in a, in a it's, it's almost a domino effect. One system collapses, then another system collapses and so on. And it's happening all over and, and we're becoming climate migrants I mean, certainly my wife Kat and I, we've moved eight times since 2017, and, uh, but other people who are you know, less fortunate and, and really uh, uh, impacted by all of these things that are going on, the, not only the climate but also the wars and stuff like that we've got to stop this stuff. We've got to figure out a way to you know, to become more present and supportive of life.
3: Let's listen to the sound of a melting glacier in Norway. How do you feel, Bernie Kraus, when you hear that?
1: Um, <laughs> i kind of nervous. I want to get the snorkel. It's not, it's, not, uh, uh, it's not something that's very reassuring. It's not only really glaciers in Norway and Switzerland, they they didn't ski this year because there wasn't any snow in the Alps.
3: Yeah, it's right. There's been stories about the kind of the end of winter or the end of skiing and,
1: yeah. I've got a recording of the whole body of the glacier uh, up in Yakut, near Yakutat, uh, north of Glacier Bay in Alaska. And I've got this Hubbard Glacier and I... I, I stuck a hydrophone down in one of the crevasses and recorded the movement of the entire, not the leading edge calving, but the movement of the entire glacier forming the moraine. And it's pretty impressive. It's very low frequency, so you have to have the right kind of equipment to hear it. Hmm. But it's, it's very telling about uh, you know, how things are going. Since we've been up there, and I think we did that in 2007, And the glacier has moved back almost half a mile since then.
3: Well, as you said, we can hear the future coming uh, uh, and it's concerning, another signal for us. Uh, What do you think our world will sound like in the future and how do you hope it will sound?
1: Well, you know, I was having a discussion with Jane Goodall about hope. And uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful about how things are going to sound and how things are going to be. Uh, and she said, well, you know, the only way that hope is going to be amplified is if there's action behind it. And, uh, and if you're willing to take you and, you know, everybody that we talk to are, are willing to make the changes necessary and take the steps necessary to make those changes, uh, there, you know, it's possible that we can
3: overcome this.
1: We're certainly not gonna do it living on Mars.
3: Well, Bernie Krause, it's always a pleasure and an honor to talk with you. Musician and soundscape ecologist, Bernie Krause, thank you so much for sharing your story and your sounds on Climate One.
2: Thank you.
0: Coming up, how will the move toward electrification change the sound of urban centers?
2: Once the neighborhood starts becoming this kind of audio-rich, diverse, quiet in terms of infrastructures, mobility, energy, water, etc. that enables natural life uh, to step forward and fill it with their chatter.
0: That's up next. The natural world isn't the only space where the sound of the environment is responding to our fossil-fueled society. Cities are filled with the sounds of cars, trucks, construction, air conditioners, and other mechanical noises. As we transition away from fossil fuels, there's an opportunity to directly influence the sound of urban centers. I spoke with Dan Hill, director of the Melbourne School of Design, about how climate change has already altered the urban soundscape.
2: I mean, cities obviously have been full of noise for as long as they've existed. Uh, Cities being places where we kind of bring together culture and community and commerce and things like that. And so those things are full of noise. So you could go back to a city 2,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, 200 years ago, and they'd be distinctly noisy places. I guess obviously the huge shift that we're all aware of is the post-industrial revolution city and the the motorized city, really. So as soon as we started bringing motors in at scale to cities, whether that was around factories and industrial production, and then obviously later years, the last couple of generations, motorized transport. That's distinctly changed the audio character, if you like, or signature of cities. And to some extent, we've lost a bit of diversity there because a Toyota Corolla sounds the same in every single city, wherever it is. And of course, the magnitude of that noise has increased as well, because you've seen transport shift from, let's say, human power or sometimes animal powered modes to motors. And they're, they're noisy, noisy things, as we know, and that has direct impact on health as well as environment.
0: So there's often this misconception, I think, that uh, in moving to electrified transportation, which we're hoping we will all begin to do, that that will mean quieter urban spaces. But um, that isn't necessarily true. Can you explain why that is?
2: So in both cases, whether we're talking about sound or carbon, you actually need to reduce the number of cars on the road, electric or otherwise. But to answer your question, it's the same with noise as well. So while the engine itself might be quieter, for instance, a large part of the noise of cars, if I just talk about cars and, well, cars and trucks, actually, once you get above 50 kilometers an hour, so uh, I guess that's like 30 miles an hour, the tire noise is perhaps the significant audio signature there. So while the engine itself might be quiet or quietish, there'll still be kind of a a hum of some kind. As car drivers know, the tire noise is still significant. And just as with the carbon, we're increasingly finding that particles from tires are also super problematic in terms of entering the bodies, entering the uh, waters um, and so on. So we have every reason really to, yes, electrify. We should do that for uh, blinding the obvious reasons, but we also need to reduce the overall amount of motorized traffic going on in general for both health and climate reasons.
0: Sticking with EVs for a minute, I think there's an interesting opportunity here to change some of the soundscape of cities, because as you mentioned, above a certain threshold, above a certain speed, most cars will sound the same, EV or internal combustion. But at the slower speeds, EVs are really quiet, almost silent in some cases. And so so much so that regulators have decided they need to make some noise to account for public safety, We've seen car makers go different directions from having simple dissonant tones to warn people that there's a car, um, to BMW hiring composer Hans Zimmer to sound design their EVs. And we wanted to play for you one of the sounds he came up with for the BMW. That's a noise used to indicate accelerating and decelerating of the engine. What do you think of these sounds?
2: Uh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, I find that quite ominous. I don't know about you, but yeah. obviously, you know, if I'm thinking, if I'm describing a piece of music here, the adjectives I'm reaching for are spooky, ominous, foreboding. I mean, which is not to say that that's incorrect, <laughs> because maybe cars approaching you or accelerating We. Perhaps we should describe them as ominous. I mean, I, I there's there's two questions there. One is, do they need to make a noise? And let's not assume that they do. And I think you know we don't make a noise when we're walking and cycling, particularly. Of course, bikes do have a noise to some extent, but not really. And therefore, bikes have bells or horns, or you can just shout. Um, mm-hmm. but you're only going again, you know, 15, 20 kilometers an hour and maybe 25 kilometers an hour maximum on a bike. So I, the way I'd answer that question is that's about how fast cars should be going in urban environments. So slowing cars down makes for a more convivial community oriented street life, super safe. You can imagine how much better that is for everybody, kids, old people, as well as those in between. So I, my starting point actually would be the, it's a bit of a red herring to get into this thing or whatever the audio version of a red herring is. Um. About whether cars should make a noise or not, because the actual answer is we just need again to diversify the number of vehicles on the streets, as in not have so many cars and slow them down, and and therefore they can, you know, you can basically talk to each other at that. At that speed most of the time and or or have a horn or a bell like a car like a bike does so there's that and then the second part is that it's sorry it's just like yeah what noise it should make is a big question but i wouldn't want it to be dominated by a hollywood composer's idea of what a car engine should sound like i mean again cities are diverse places full of a million ideas why is it not a latin soundtrack why is it not a big bass soundtrack you know why is it not uh, um guitars. i mean who's to say you know it's just so i find it a bit odd that it's uh it is interesting it sounds so ominous maybe that's my overlay onto it but i find it strange to give one person in this case uh, an all you know kind of a a composer um the sound of our streets when their streets are a collectively produced thing
0: I was. i really like that answer it uh, makes you think why do they have to make noise at all so One thing we've talked about on the show before is micro-mobility, small electric vehicles like e-bikes or e-scooters. And so if, as we're discussing, urban spaces were to move away from being so car-centric, how would those vehicles change the soundscape?
2: Well, it's more, in a way, um, you know, sound is a kind of zero-sum game to some extent, as in if we reduce the noise of something, then something else steps forward. So if we reduce the amount of Noise, say, then we hear coffee machines and you can hear your neighbors and you hear birds singing and you also hear your noisy neighbors, of course. I'm not, I'm not I don't want to pretend it's all beautiful bird song all the time, but nonetheless, the, the sound of the city comes forward if we reduce the soundtrack. If you think of it like a mixing desk, it would be like uh, having. 17, 18 musicians in the room, but one of them's playing so loud all the time. <laughs> so you just have to kind of slide that noise down. It reminds me of the Saturday Night Live sketch with the cowbell on it. It's just like we need a little less cowbell in this in this signature. And then the other voices can come forward. So I think there's there's the same uh, to some extent. What what you then hear is interesting. And of course, then bikes and things like scooters and so on, they tend to make just a lot less noise. So um, it enables you again to hear the kind of the, ideally the richness of the audio environment of the place that you live in which is then again yeah full of character and full of different languages and music and just the sound of life uh, so i do think it's a bit like that it's like a mixing desk where we've got one very over dominant instrument and it's drowning out the sound of everybody else all of these other modes pretty much including electric vehicles like i said if they're slowed down and part of a much richer mix, then they, they tend to allow other noises to step forward. And then we've got a really interesting conversation about, you know, what does, what does the downtown where you live sound like compared to the downtown where I live? Or what's a quiet suburb where I am um, versus a quiet suburb where you are? And what's what's different about those places? And you'd realize, again, well, they're full of different voices, different people, different um, natural environments with different animals in them. You know, that, that all can step forward in that way. And we know that that has health benefits in both directions. And, and it's not just about health, actually. It's also about social life and culture and community as well, of course. But we know that the over traffic noise is harming to our health. Whereas when people get a chance to hear a more diverse sound environment, their health increases in multiple ways.
0: Hmm. Well, we've been talking a lot about traffic and vehicles, but I'm curious, apart from transportation, what other ways our soundscape could change with the transition to renewable energy. So I'm trying to think of other things that are fossil fuel driven that make noise, maybe air conditioners um, or furnaces, for example. And I don't know necessarily if heat pumps are quieter, uh, but I'm curious about your thoughts on that.
2: There's a really interesting shift happening here. All of these machines are getting a bit quieter as they become electric, but they're also more distributed, the more at hand. Your example of the heat pump is interesting or solar cells on your roof. If you have a roof that gets good sunlight and then a battery in the basement, that means your house is sort of or your apartment block is working as a kind of power station, essentially with storage in it, but it's super quiet, isn't it? I mean, it's compared to, if we imagine the power station that I grew up with in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, all of those things, or I grew up in the North of England. That's a Coal belching—I mean, literally furnaces connected to those things are up in Sheffield. It's full of noise and smoke and crashing engines and things. Uh, so it's it's changing radically once the neighbourhood starts becoming this kind of uh, audio-rich, diverse, um, quiet in some sort of infrastructures—mobility, energy, water, etc.—that enables natural life and including humans there to kind of step forward and fill it with their chatter which i think i mean are so beneficial
0: yeah yeah for sure so um you've touched on some of the negative health impacts of sound um and we often think of sound a little bit in a negative way you know how to limit those sounds that we're describing like loud airplanes or jackhammers can you tell me how else we can consider sounds in a positive way when you're describing that diversity of a city and and the sounds that some people might find appealing and others may not and and just the sort of audio tapestry that can exist when there isn't one dominant note.
2: There's this sense that when we when sound became this thing to be regulated, and it became a thing to be regulated because of the noise and because of the harm, just like with smoke and air quality. So there had been this kind of understanding that we have to regulate these things. They're probably like a necessary evil, I guess, but people knew fairly early on that that was a bad idea, but then it was just kind of this trade-off. Um, and it's the same with sound and particularly the sound around vehicles and traffic that people have kind of got to a point where it's kind of um, something to be regulated. We understand it's not a great idea. If you live next to a freeway, you know that that's damaging your health. And so, you, you know, people then try to put noise barriers or they find ways of moving your house backwards or whatever, but um, or trying to limit the noise at certain times of day. If you live under a flight path, likewise, there's supposed to be like a curfew where the airplanes are not going to be flying after a certain time of night. Even though technically they could. But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, so we understand there's this kind of trade off here and we regulate our way around that because we understand that it's again a sort of a necessary evil that we need to mitigate against. I think that's probably the wrong starting point for noise and sound going forward because sound is full of, again, as you, I've been trying to convey, life and joy and richness and culture. And we want certain noises to a step forward. I mean, actually, most noises in a sense. So that's a kind of a flip of perspective and it's understanding that sound is complex but interesting and can be beneficial and is subjective, as in people respond to sound in different ways if you're different people. And there there are some sounds that are distinctly harmful and they are sort of population-wide harm, just like a bad air quality is. So what we have a way forward now though is to kind of again with my mix, mixing desk analogy is to limit the amount of noise coming from the harmful stuff absolutely and take it right down because electrifying all of those motors does a, does a huge amount of work there in terms of that and enables the other sounds to step forward. So then we're in this interesting question about shifting the way we think from this kind of regulating down to actually just getting rid of the sound in the first place by either shifting the traffic on the streets to a different mix and then electrifying the engines of the cars that are left. That enables us to now think, okay, now what is our sound of, about as a place? You know, what does Austin, Texas sound like? What does what does St. Louis sound like? You know, that's a much more interesting conversation. I mean, you're kind of down to suburban neighborhood level at that point, because obviously people sound different in different neighborhoods. There's something interesting there as well, because it's not like all sounds are universally appealing. I mean, we might also joke about, you know, maybe a baby gurgling is universally appealing. I don't know. I think it probably is, (laughs) but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to find that some people find it distinctly distressing uh, for numerous reasons. Um, There was an amazing project done a few years ago called Positive Soundscapes, where they actually interviewed people about what sounds they found appealing and had to track it in numerous ways and all kinds of sounds, you know, like the sound of a washing machine is strangely appealing to some people. The sound of a jackhammer was strangely appealing to some people, you know, so it's not like there's a universal palette that we're all tuned towards, just like there's no one piece of music that everybody universally agrees on. So I think that's much more interesting as a way of stepping forward and sort of enables us to sort of shift the regulation out of the way. The regulation becomes how do we incentivize electric vehicles and reduce traffic? As opposed to having to regulate the externality of all of that stuff, the noise and you know, the incessant noise which blocks everything else out. So the thing that we might find interesting to step that steps into this space is the sound of nature, which is often something that in an urban environment we don't tend to think about. One thing that we have suffered from due to noise is um, traffic noise has really reduced the amount of bird song and diverse bird species, kind of what's called bird species richness, I guess, as in how diverse the birds are around you. And it seems like lots of researchers have found out that um, you increase traffic noise, then birdsong goes down almost in inverse proportion. You decrease traffic noise, birdsong comes up, particularly diversity of birdsong. And this, it looks like it may be one of those sort of exceptions to the rule I just said, as in it could be that it's beneficial for all humans to hear birdsong as far as we can tell. And it's really significant—a significantly increase in health, directly to your mental health. The more birds you hear and the more singing they're doing, and you recover from sickness quicker, and so on and so on. But there's an amazing bit of research that was done in Europe, and it was looking at—it looked at across about twenty-six thousand Europeans. So it's a big study, and they found the effect of bird species richness on life satisfaction is bigger than income. So. <laughs> Essentially, you get a, a, a 10% increase in life satisfaction, your personal life satisfaction, if you, uh, if, as, as you increase bird species richness around you. And that's about one and a half times more than a proportional, a similar increase in your income.
0: Oh, that's so your really income
2: amazing. Up 10%. <laughs> I know, it's, it is amazing. And it makes you wonder... What on earth are we doing? <laughs> species? Like why are we, why are we placing so much emphasis on income when we could just actually increase the number of births? Well, to
0: that to that <laughs> point though.
2: Like <laughs> but, yeah. No,
0: but to that point I'm curious, you know, if if we there's in the climate space, there's a lot of attention paid to planting more trees as a way of, you know, pulling down carbon um and improving the air quality locally. But what about just increasing green spaces in general in in cities? And does that um what what does that do for the soundscape of urban spaces?
2: Yeah, I mean a huge amount because I mean green spaces soften the sound. I mentioned you know an urban environment is pretty hard um, without green spaces, and so and if you if you you know you all know about sound, it 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 loves to bounce around hard spaces, <laughs> just like heat does. So it's an acoustically noisy environment. Put it that way. If it's uh, hard edge, and it's tarmac and it's stone and so on and glass. Um, the more we soften that up, then that sound dissipates. So you know increase, increase street trees, they filter noise beautifully actually. They're just as they do with heat, they also reduce, you know, the heat temperature at street level by four or five degrees, depending on where you are. Um, but they do the same with wind. They dissipate that and they also do the same with sound. So, so that on that side alone, uh, just creating a kind of an acoustically richer environment, increasing greenery does a huge amount there to make it kind of a richer soundscape. Um, and then equally as, you know, relating to my previous point, it was. Um, you're then also increasing the sound of nature. If you're planting the right plants, so you're planting pollinators and things, then you're getting the birds and you're getting the insects that birds then are attracted to. If you're getting flowers and pollinators in the same place as the right kind of trees, then of course that, that's how you increase your bird species. But what you can't do is also have a ton of traffic noise going on at the same time there. So those things again are kind of proportional, but it's about the space that they take. Um yeah. Again, you can't have a street that's full of cars and trees actually, you know, if something has to give there. Yeah. So that's why there's huge, amounts projects all over the world, Paris, Barcelona, here in Melbourne, the same in the US, about beginning to swap out parking spaces for greener environments for street trees and so on, because it's better for our health, it's better for our community life, it's better for safety, it's better for security. I mean, it's just a win-win-win-win-win on every single point. They are also better acoustically and they also tend to attract the sense of nature as well, which as I said, is really positive for people in numerous ways.
0: Mm -hmm. You're the director of the Melbourne School of Design and I'm curious, in designing urban spaces, I would guess that the top priorities are aesthetics and functionality. Is sound design a consideration And if not, why not?
2: You're absolutely right. It's um, sound traditionally has come down the pecking order when it comes to the sort of list of things that you're looking at when you're designing an urban space or a building. Um, Part of that is to do, I mean, there's a long, there's a long history to that to some extent. It's what the Finnish architect called, uh, this is a, $50 $50 word in Finnish, but ocular centric. <laughs> so as in like, we're just uh, architects in particular are focused on the way things look. Now he was, he wrote this book called the eyes of the skin, which is about all of the other senses. And of course, you know, what, what the, the building feels like, what it, what it smells like, what it, what the, the air is like when you're standing in it, the way that it spatially affects you. And of course, the way it sounds like are also part of the mix that are hugely affecting to us as um, a species. So. That's been a traditional um, blind spot. There's an oculocentric way of putting it, um, around the way we design. And as you said, you know, aesthetics then gets reduced to the way things look. Aesthetics needn't be that, of course. Aesthetics—it's just a kind of a richness of culture, and it could include sound just as much. But it's just been a traditional mode within architecture probably for the last two or 300 years. And the professionalization of it has moved it in that direction, away from making things by hand and by craft, which again, huge benefits of those things, but we lost then a sense of um, how we approach buildings and spaces to multi-sensory environments in that shift. So then when it's become then this kind of trade-off I talked about earlier, the regulatory trade-off then planners are usually driven by, again, okay, we've got to put a freeway through here for functional reasons, as you said, and then there might be an attempt to make it an aesthetically pleasing thing, either through the civil engineering of it as a form or you know, noise barriers or putting artwork. Here in Melbourne, there's a great tradition of building freeways, but commissioning public art alongside the freeway. So that's an amazing program, That's but that's kind of a bit like putting horrible phrase but lipstick on a pig you know it's huge. you've made the freeway <laughs> that's already done a ton of damage um putting a uh, and really interesting artwork next to it has a tiny ameliorating effect at that point it's kind of too late so so yeah I think that our, our traditionally we've approached it as this kind of very regulatory we deal with the negative externalities but we don't addren- we don't address the thing we're building in the first place the freeway or the building really aesthetically so that's the shift that's going on. Because we're beginning to see again this kind of win-win-win benefit of um, public health, social justice, climate action and so on can also be approached as an aesthetic challenge all at the same time. And that, that's the that's the approach cities are beginning to take. And that means multi-sensory richness is part of the answer there. Because we're actually dealing with then the places that people live in and how they live there and wrangling with the reality of that, not just kind of hovering over it from 20,000 feet above and drawing a line across the map and saying, there's a freeway.
0: Mm -hmm. Dan Hill is the director of the Melbourne School of Design. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on Climate One.
2: Thanks for inviting me, really enjoyed the conversation.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about our climate-altered soundscape. Special thanks to Bernie Krause for sharing some of his sound library with us. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency, Talking about climate can be really hard. And it's super important to address the transitions we have to make in all parts of society. Please help us get more people talking about climate. You can do that by giving our show a rating or a review or sending a link to it to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Cologne and me, Ariana Brocious. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Thanks for listening.